0: All right, we are in Matthew chapter 19. If you'd open your Bibles there and navigate on your device to Matthew 19, our text is gonna be verses 13 through 15. The topic there, Jesus rebukes his disciples for trying to prevent children from being brought to him to be blessed. The title of our message, No Child Left Unblessed. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our morning. We appreciate your word And I pray that these three verses, Lord, would just pack a wallop in our hearts as they take us in so many great directions this morning. And Lord, that they would comfort those who need comfort this morning as well. In Jesus' name we pray. And those who agreed said, amen. Amen. They've been labeled brat bands, brat bands. It's a trend among businesses that are telling parents their children are not allowed. Leading the charge are a handful of movie theaters, restaurants, airlines, and vacation destinations that have put child-free policies in place in order to create a better experience for adults. On its double-decker aircraft, Malaysia Airlines imposed an age limit on the whole upper floor, banning children under 12 years of age from being seated there. Babies are banned in the first-class cabin. The Alamo Theater chain in Texas and Virginia bans children under six years old. CEO Tim League says, and I quote, if the movie is a non-crossover kids movie, we sometimes flex this age down to three and up, and we also have select baby day screenings each week for infants and small children. But if you want to take your four-year-old to see The Hangover 2 at 10 p.m., you'll have to go somewhere else. Jesus' disciples notorious brat banners. They tried to turn away parents who were bringing their kids to Jesus to be blessed by him. After rebuking his disciples, or as he was doing it rather, he uttered the famous line, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Was his intention simply to overrule any possible ban we might put on children in any circumstance? Or was he using the occasion to teach us something much more profound about kids that we should pay closer attention to? Well, I think you know the answer to that. So let's take a look and see what conclusions we can draw. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Bring your kids to Jesus' loving arms. And number two, trust your kids in Jesus' loving arms. First of all, bring your kids to Jesus. Now it's important we set the scene for Jesus' comments. He had just finished a controversial discussion with the Pharisees regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. In the parallel account in the Gospel of Mark, we learn that Jesus and his disciples went into a house where they pressed him further about the issues of marriage and celibacy. It was in the house, having a conversation with his boys, that parents were coming to him to have Jesus bless their children. And then in Luke's gospel, the kids involved, at least some of them, are described as infants. They were babies. And so verse 13, then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Many reasons have been suggested for them wanting to turn away the children. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they wanted to go on having an adult conversation about human sexuality and knew that it would be inappropriate for kids. I think almost all of us believe that there are age-appropriate boundaries we should set for children. It's not a brat band to be careful what children are exposed to. Now, in the Jewish culture of the first century, according to the sources I read this week, parents had a practice of bringing their infants, usually on or around their first birthday, to the synagogue so that the rabbi could pray over them and pronounce a blessing upon them. This event in Matthew was what we would call a baby dedication, Dedicating a baby or even an older child is not one of the two ordinances required of Christians in the New Testament. As Christians, we are to be baptized and we are to participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, I've been told that baby dedications are therefore unbiblical, but that's not really true because all we are doing is acknowledging that the child is a gift from God and we are praying for him or her and the parents. And there there can't really be anything unbiblical about praying for a child. There does not seem to be any conflict with scripture in doing a baby dedication as long as parents do not view it as something that is required or as somehow assuring the salvation of the child. The dedications in Matthew were prompted by the news that Jesus was in the house. If you wanted him to bless your baby, you'd have to take advantage of the timing because he was gonna be on his way soon enough. In fact, in verses 14 and 15, we read, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. When the disciples rebuked the parents, the Lord overruled them and turned their error into a teachable moment. Now, he had previously explained to them that the humility of an obedient, trusting, submissive child to his or her father was a model for our behavior as citizens in his kingdom. Rebuking them for their attempt to turn away these kids was a reminder of that important truth. There was very definitely a spiritual principle, therefore, in his words We might put it like this. For whatever reason or reasons, the disciples were acting childishly when they should have been more childlike. Jesus had told them earlier, be like a child. They were being childish by seeking to turn these parents away. As for a literal principle to follow, we could say the text is telling us to bring our kids to Jesus. Now how would we bring our kids to Jesus today? I made a short list, you can probably add this uh, or add to this list, I would say. Being God, an attribute of his deity is that Jesus is everywhere, he is omnipresent. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that we ought to bring our kids to where Jesus said he'd be in a special way, and that is among his gathered church on earth when we meet. I'm fond of reminding us of uh, Revelation chapter one where the apostle John sees Jesus in his glorified state revealed walking, he says, in the midst of the candlesticks. And the candlesticks are defined for us as representing the churches on the earth. And so though Jesus is everywhere present, because he is of course God, he said he would be present in a very special way when the church gathers together to minister one to another and to minister to him. And so obviously, if you want to bring your kids to Jesus, you want to be bringing your kids on a regular basis to a local fellowship of believers uh, where they can have interaction with the body of Christ. Now secondly, we bring our kids to Jesus when we dedicate them. You no, know, as I said, dedication is not a requirement, but neither is it unscriptural or prohibited. If you want to dedicate your children, you can. if you don 't, you don 't need to. But it is a very precious custom I found it 's humbling and exhilarating to come and stand before your church family and ask for prayer to help you raise your children in the ways of the Lord. There's a, a spiritual transaction that can take place between you and the Lord and the body of Christ that you're a member of. It's just another acknowledgement and recognition uh, publicly that you intend to, to follow the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's like saying what Joshua said at the end of his uh, journey with the Lord. He said, as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. And so that's a a very powerful declaration. Now thirdly, we bring our kids to Jesus by exposing them all the time to the Lord and to the things of the Lord, not just at church, uh, but everywhere. Now, we are not Israel, but the exhortation of Deuteronomy 6 to parents is still appropriate for raising godly children, and I would bet that 90% of you who have children or have raised children either have or had these verses somewhere on a plaque in your home. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you're sitting in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Obviously, the the impact of that is that you should be talking to your children all of the time about the Lord and the things of the Lord. Uh, when you get up in the morning all day, when you go to bed at night, uh, you should be bringing the Lord into their world. And fourthly, we bring kids to Jesus by actively evangelizing them. We're gonna talk more about a child's spiritual condition and about the age of accountability in just a moment. For now, we need to be reminded that our kids need to make a personal, willful decision to trust Jesus Christ as their savior from sin we should ask them to receive the Lord. And since they are kids, we should go on asking them to receive the Lord until they have attained what we believe to be an age of accountability. Uh, I'm not saying that a small, real young child can't be saved or isn't genuinely saved but they oftentimes don't really remember what they've been doing and there's nothing wrong with continuing to ask them about the Lord. Our granddaughter, CJ, most of you know CJ, she's eight, last April on on 12th of April to be exact, she was over and on her own she uh, wanted to watch that series that was on recently, The Bible. Uh, and so we, I forget which, uh, which one we started on, but when we got to the chapter about Abraham, she started asking us questions about going to heaven and she wanted to know what she needed to do to go to heaven so we talked to her about the Lord and about receiving the Lord and praying and asking for forgiveness of sins and and I asked her, you know, having a little, kind of a mini, you know, uh, stadium evangelism thing going on, And you know, I told her the buses will wait. Uh, no, I didn't. But I said, I said, would you like Papa to pray and then you can pray after me, you know? You, and she goes, No, I can pray on my own. And then she did. She told God she'd been sinning a lot and uh, she wanted to be forgiven and to be a good little girl and to do better at school. Uh, in Jesus' name, Amen. And so we were all excited. Pam and I got really excited about that. It was a really special thing for us to. Uh, to be a part of and and it's just a reminder your children gosh they're so lovable but they're they're little sinners and 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 you have uh you know that's your little congregation in terms of teaching them the things of the lord and and never assuming uh that they're saved uh but keep giving them the word and uh asking them to come to the lord So far, we understand Jesus' comment, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven, to be a spiritual rebuke or a reminder to us to have childlike humility, and on a practical level, to be an encouragement to constantly expose our kids to the things of the Lord, including church, in order to evangelize them. Now, I want briefly to talk about our policy here at Calvary of asking parents with young children to not sit here in the main sanctuary, but rather in one of the other locations available to them, such as the fabulous family-friendly fellowship hall. (laughs) It's hard to say. Trying to be a little bit lighthearted here because people get really offended about this. And I bring this up now only because whenever someone objects to this as a policy, they always quote these words of Jesus about letting the little children come to him. And so, one of our ushers, God love you guys, uh, you know, they, they're tasked with having to try to implement this, this controversial policy that has created world wars before and, uh, and, and whenever people Uh, you know, are not able to bring their small children into the sanctuary or suggested that they might want to meet somewhere else on campus, Uh, oftentimes they get really offended, and they say, Jesus said, suffer the little children to come to him, so you tell your pastor, uh, you know, that he hates children, and so how can he be like Jesus, and those kinds of things. So uh, Now, on a purely biblical level, let's just, let's forget our emotions. On a purely biblical level, Jesus did not mean that kids of any age could interrupt him anytime they or their parents wanted to. That is clearly not the intention of these words. When he uttered that sentence, he was hanging out in a house, he was not in a synagogue or in some more formal setting, and apparently he was getting ready to leave because it says once he blessed the children, he split. Uh, And so the whole scene is, in a house, probably having a meal. Hey, I don't wanna talk about these things any. We've, I've exhausted the topic of marriage, divorce, remarriage and celibacy. These parents are coming. Uh, to have their children blessed. I wanna bless the children, and then we're gonna ski-daddle out of here. So that's what was going on. Now, the Bible does suggest, at least on one occasion, that you might restrict younger kids from a general public assembly. It's in the book of Nehemiah. They gathered together all the people to hear the reading of the law, and then in Nehemiah 8, 2, we read this. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Those who could hear with understanding were children over a certain unspecified age. Children were welcome at this assembly, but there was an age appropriate restriction. I think our accommodation of kids here is pretty fantastic. Recognizing that younger kids can in fact cause distractions, we have a beautiful, comfortable, casual place for families who prefer being together to experience worship and the word. Wednesday nights, we're extremely family friendly, you might say, as kids join us for worship and if their parents desire, they can stay in for the entire service. Let me tell you, it can be pretty noisy on Wednesday nights as the kids wiggle and giggle their way through the evening. Uh, but that's what Wednesday nights is about and so we've, everybody knows that that's what's going to be happening uh, and it's not a problem. Our children's ministry isn't just for babysitting so that children aren't causing a distraction for adults. We share the gospel in age-appropriate ways in order to evangelize the kids. The kids love their teachers who spend time in prayer, not just for the lesson, but for the individual children. If you do any reading around, authors around the turn of the century or early 1900s, All of them talk about the effect that Sunday school teachers had on their little hearts. And many of the great evangelists of our era and great Christians of our era were saved in a child Sunday school class. And so it's very important we feel that children are instructed in the gospel at a coloring book level that they can understand. Even if a child isn't going to cause a distraction in the Sunday morning service, they're not going to understand what we're talking about in the same way that they would in a Sunday school class. Why wouldn't a parent want to take advantage of that kind of help bringing their child to Jesus? So, we take Jesus' statement seriously, but we place greater emphasis on the spiritual component of it. We want to see children brought to him in order to be saved, so we provide age-appropriate instruction for them. Recognizing the rights of parents to stay together as a family should they so desire, we provide places on campus where that is possible and extremely comfortable while simultaneously maintaining the sanctuary as a place where distractions can be kept to a minimum for folks who want to focus totally on the word. And we have a much more lax policy at our midweek service. So I see the whole thing as a win-win for everyone and I know I joke around a lot, but I am truly sad when people don 't respect that policy uh, i 'm sad in the sense that if they give it a try uh, they 're going to find out that it 's really better for them it 's better for their children uh, and and that there 's nothing really wrong with it uh, we 're not banning children it 's not a brat ban to uh, to have one tiny area of the church that uh, a person who maybe doesn 't even know the Lord could come and in a distraction-free way, hear the word of God taught. And I know it's hard for me to say this because it's hard, but it's really not about me. Uh, I kind of love distractions because it gives me a chance to goof off and make fun of people. Uh, so, you know, I, I sometimes call people during the service to see if their phone was on. Alex Shepard will tell you, every Sunday for years, I used to, he used to wear, I think he still might wear his phone on his belt, and I think, I'm calling him and stuff to make sure. And I would call and his phone would flash, and I knew it was me, but he had he had it on mute because, uh, you know, you forget to put your phone on mute, and then he'd go, And then for some reason, even though it's your phone, you you be do it you know no one knows how to turn their phone off all of a sudden it's like it's never it's never beeped before and stuff and I, I find it kind of fun and so it's it's really not about me uh, I it's about the word of God and just ministering to people in different ways so. That's our policy. Now we saw in Nehemiah a biblical reference to those who could hear with understanding. It indicates that understanding brings responsibility or we more commonly say accountability. When you start saying there is an age of accountability, it raises all sorts of important questions. The most important one might be, what happens to children who die before the age of accountability? We say they go to heaven. And that's why we can trust our kids in Jesus' loving arms. Now if you think all Christians agree that children who died before the age of accountability go to heaven, you've got another thing coming. The most common answer you'll get is, I don't know, or we can't be certain. It's very popular to say, well we just don't know because the Bible is unclear. I don't believe that's true, by the way. What I think people are saying is, I don't know or we can't be sure because my theology leads me to think something differently. Uh, They're really talking about what they believe about the Bible rather than the Bible itself. So let's get into this. When talking about infants and children who cannot believe because they lack understanding, theologians normally include those with mental impairments that render them incapable of believing as well. And so we're, while we're talking about uh, infants and children this morning, uh, we're referring to those folks as well, and we're talking about them all as people who cannot believe. For one reason or another, they just cannot believe. It is a a physical impossibility because of their age or their mental condition in order for them to hear the gospel and believe. Now, the Bible doesn't make any distinction between someone who needs salvation and someone who doesn't. All people who are conceived are equally lost, including those who cannot believe. You enter the world a sinner (laughs) with a sin nature before you ever commit a conscious, willful act of sin. And that's why Ephesians 2, 1 says, you are born dead in trespasses and sins. You are born, you're conceived, and you are born dead in trespasses and sins, a hell-doomed sinner. Now everyone, including those who cannot believe, are lost. They are perishing, they are condemned, they are under God's wrath. One author put it this way, he said, babies are beautiful, but they're also lost. They're delightful, but they're depraved. They're filled with life, but they are dead in trespasses and sin. All are in need of God's salvation. Jesus died for all. Many passages teach that salvation is sufficient for and intended for everyone. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Hebrews 2.9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. John 12.32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 1 John 2, 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. And so it's easy to show that Jesus died for everyone, but not everyone will be saved. The cross is a universal provision for the universal problem of sin, but it doesn't lead to universalism, meaning not everyone is saved. There's one condition, and that is that you believe in Jesus Christ. First Timothy 4.10 puts these two concepts together. He says, we labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Paul couldn't put it any clearer. The cross is sufficient to save the entire human race and it is active in the lives of those who actually believe it. Those are the ones who are saved. So let's talk about what it means to believe since that is the one and only condition that God has set for salvation. We might ask, why do people believe in Jesus Christ? Do they believe on their own without any outside influence by God? No, they do not. Decide on their own it's only by the grace of God operating on the human heart that a person can exercise the faith to believe and be saved The Holy Spirit plays a vital role in bringing a sinner to see his or her need for salvation Jesus said no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him The Father draws all men to himself as the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to convict of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. God's grace operates on the human heart, freeing the will of the sinner to be able to believe and to receive the Lord. Now, whether you're a, if some of you, you know, who maybe have done some studies in theology, whether you're a Calvinist, whether you're an Arminian, Everyone believes that that uh, salvation is by grace through faith, meaning that God must take the initiative. If you're going to be saved, God must send his Holy Spirit in order uh, for his grace to operate on your heart. The difference between Calvinists and Arminians is that the Calvinist says he only operates on the hearts of the elect and his grace is irresistible. And the Arminian says he operates on the heart of every man who can understand and his grace is resistible. That's why I use the phrase he frees the will of an individual to be able to make a decision for or against Christ. So a child or the mentally deficient cannot believe. They cannot meet the one condition necessary for salvation. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not able to operate on those who are incapable of understanding the word of God. If the one condition of salvation is to believe, and if a person cannot believe, will they be held responsible by God God for something they were unable to do and therefore miss out on heaven? To say yes, to me at least, is an insult to everything Jesus Christ reveals to us of the character and nature of God. And besides, scripture teaches that eternal condemnation is based on a clear rejection of God's revelation, not simple ignorance of it. In other words, you need to be brought, uh, uh, God needs to reveal himself to you and you need to reject that. Jesus said in John 12, 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Everyone who can believe, even if they've never heard the gospel, will be judged on the basis of the revelation they did receive and reject. Those who cannot believe cannot be held accountable. And so, there are people who have never heard the gospel. We're not saying that they are automatically saved. Not at all. They must be judged on the basis of the revelation that they do have, which the Bible says that creation declares the glory of God. And so, every man everywhere has some revelation of God and the evangelical answer to, well, how do those that don't have the gospel get saved is that if they respond to the revelation they do have, God will see to it that they are led to a place of saving faith. Uh, and, And so everyone who can believe will be judged on the basis of the revelation they received. Those who cannot believe cannot be held accountable. If you cannot understand or repent or believe, then the work of Jesus on the cross, which is unlimited in its scope, can be rightfully applied to you by God. So we're not saying, as some people say, that children and those who can't believe are innocent or that they're not really sinners or that they are born in some other state. No, they were born dead in trespasses and sins, but the universal provision that Christ made on the cross can properly be applied to them by God because they can't believe. And he can include them in the cross if he wants to, and I believe that he has. Taking these biblical facts into account, we would say the following. All who can believe must do so to receive eternal life, but all who cannot believe receive the same eternal life provided by Jesus for them since they are unable to receive it or reject it. Now these arguments are good, but are there specific scriptures about children that can help us? And by that I mean are there specific passages that address the eternal destiny of those who cannot believe? And I say that there are. Job was being severely tested by God. He despaired of his life. Some, some of you have been there. You think, you, you think, man, I wish I had been born dead uh, or never been born. Well, here's what Job said. He says in verse 11 of chapter three, why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Why the breasts that I should nurse? For now, I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest. Job wished he'd been stillborn. He believed he would have been better off. He describes the destiny of the stillborn using the words still, quiet, asleep, and at rest. He's certainly not describing a state in which he would have been annihilated and ceased to exist. It meant, if he meant that, he would have said that it would have been better if I had never been conceived. No, he said it's better that I had been stillborn because then I would be in a place of rest. He didn't know as much about heaven as we who have the complete revelation of God know, but he knew there was a better place and that a stillborn infant would go there. The most often referenced Bible passage regarding the destiny of the unborn is 2 Samuel 12, verses 22 and 23. King David had sinned by sleeping with Bathsheba. She became pregnant. He had her husband killed. The prophet Nathan rebuked him, letting David know that as part of his punishment, the child born to him with Bathsheba would die shortly after his birth. David fasted and prayed up until the child died. Then he got up, he cleaned up, he ate, and went about his normal routine as the king. His servants were confused about his behavior. They thought he should have been all the sadder at the death of his son. This was his answer. He says, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him he shall not return to me. Life after death was a certainty for David. He definitely and confidently believed that he would in the future again be with his son. He had no doubt whatsoever that his infant son, taken in death before he could receive or reject his father's God, would be there also. There are two arguments that can be leveled against this position by those who say it does not teach the salvation of those who cannot believe, and here they are. The first argument is that David simply meant one day I will join my son in death. In other words, he said, my son died, I'm gonna die one day. We'll be laying next to each other in a cemetery. That is absurd to me. To say that there is no expectation of heaven in his words is absurd. It's clear that he was anticipating a joyous reunion that could only take place in paradise. It's clear from the tone and the tenor and the words themselves that he understood he and his son would be reunited, not in the ground, but in heaven. Now the second argument is that David's son would indeed be in heaven, but only because he was the child of a believer. That position is that the children of believers do indeed go to heaven, but not, or most likely not, the children of non-believers. Now you have to understand that this position is arrived at because of your decision about the election of people unto salvation. If you believe that the atonement of Christ, his work on the cross, is limited to a certain elect group of people, that it's not really available to the entire world, uh, then you are led to the conclusion that most of the world is already condemned to hell and that would include any unborn children to them and that only a select group of people, the elect, are saved and probably their children are going to be elect as well. And, And that's the argument. I find this too to be absurd. While a believing parent or parents are a blessing, No one is saved because their parents were saved. God doesn't make a deal and say, hey, if you get saved, all your children are gonna be covered as well. The only scripture they use is in Corinthians, and it seems to indicate that there would be a blessing in the home, but not salvation. And notice, too, that those who use the second argument, they are conceding that people who cannot believe, at least some of them, can be saved without believing. They just want to restrict it to a certain limited group because that's what their overall theology says. I say, if a person who cannot believe can be saved, why can't all of them be saved? Why aren't all of them saved? And I believe that the Bible teaches that of course they are for all the reasons that we're giving you. If the Bible teaches that there is an age of accountability, that too would be strong evidence that God does not hold those under that age accountable, but instead saves them if they die before reaching it. It seems that there is an age of accountability. In talking about the children of the wicked city of Nineveh, the Lord described them as those who could not discern between their right hand and their left. In other words, there was an age before which they couldn't discern anything. They, they didn't know uh, who they were, really, or what they were doing. They, they didn't have that consciousness of, of right and wrong. Deuteronomy one thirty nine. the Lord was speaking to the generation of Israelites who had sinned by refusing to enter the Promised Land. He describes children as those who, quote, had no knowledge between good and evil, and therefore they were not held accountable, and they would be allowed to go into the land. We saw too in Nehemiah that there was an age at which a child could understand what was being said in God's word. And so when people say, well, there's no specific scriptures and we don't really know, I don't think that's honest. I think the whole account with David and his son is in the scripture so that we would be confident that children who die before the age of accountability go to be with the Lord, and the only possible argument there is that it's only because David was a believer, uh, but I think that that is not a valid argument because it presupposes that what you believe theologically is correct. It's an argument from theology, not from the Bible. What is the age of accountability? No definite answer can be given because it will vary from person to person. James four seventeen says, therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. At some point in your life, you come to an awareness, a self-awareness, and a, a, an ability to uh, be, have your heart moved upon by the Holy Spirit to show you that you're a sinner in need of salvation. Uh, and that becomes your age of accountability, whether it's eight, or nine, or 10, or 12, or 13. I know you look at some adults and think it's more like 21, uh, you know, but uh, it's somewhere, you know, we usually uh, use an arbitrary age of 12 or 13, you know, for these kinds of things, but somewhere around puberty, maybe, who knows, but it's gonna be different for everyone else. But the point is, there is an age of accountability, and there wouldn't need to be one if God held everyone accountable, whether they uh, could be liable or not. And so we say there are specific passages that address the destiny of those who cannot believe and that all of this taken together reveals to us that they do, in fact, go to heaven. Now, there are undoubtedly infant and child deaths represented here today. It can be a very um, serious subject uh, you know, to talk about. It's not a theological subject to you. It's a very personal subject. Uh, there are miscarriages, Uh, There are abortions. And I know that many of you have solved this for yourself, but I would hope that today the Lord would be speaking to your heart that your stillborn child, your unborn child, your aborted child is safe in the arms of Jesus. Not just because he's a loving God and we would like to believe that they are, but because they definitely are based on the clear teaching of the word of God that Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe and of those who cannot believe. Let's pray.